You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickschiller.com. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and this week I have a special guest, Ariana Mizuki. Ariana, I um, got her name from a previous podcast guest, Kansas Carradine. So I was I had Kansas on the, the podcast last year and recently got to spend quite a bit of time with Kansas in Australia and um, there was a lot more to Kansas than I <laughs> I got out of her on the podcast and she told me that her one of her really good friends, Ariana, would be a perfect fit for the podcast. And now that I've had the conversation with Ariana, Kansas was right. But I'm going to read a little bit about Ariana's bio before we get to the podcast here. It says, Ariana is a master somatic coach, serial entrepreneur, zoologist, rancher, professional equestrian, raptor expert. When I say raptor expert, I mean expert in large birds of prey artist and international spokeswoman. She's been developing business leaders, coaches and healers since 1989. She's coached thousands of people from around the world who go on to achieve their own transformational goals. Her approach is original, direct and deeply authentic. Ariana is a force of nature, which is why she is called into so many other leadership programs. As a pioneer in leadership development, with an emphasis on emotional intelligence somatic awareness and grounding in natural environments, she realized early on that nature, land and being outside play an instrumental and unique role in helping people get in touch with who they are and what they care about. In some way, this has been no surprise to Ariana, since she grew up in the coastal headlands rich in wildness, beauty, frankness, honesty and inspiration. What she's learned through time is that all people, especially leaders, benefit from time in nature because it provides the answers for taking a new level of responsibility that one cannot glean from a stuffy conference room. So I'm sure that you guys will enjoy this conversation with Ariana as much as I did. Ariana Mizuki, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. Well, it's so great to be here with you, Warwick. Thank you for having me. This, you know, this is going to be fun. You know, you are one of those people that has a, a, a CV a mile long. And I was just looking at what, you know, you've got, there's several places on the internet to find out your bio sort of thing. And I just looked at one that said, master somatic coach, serial entrepreneur, zoologist, rancher, professional equestrian, raptor expert, artist and international spokeswoman that's that's like three <laughs> lifetimes worth of achievements right there <laughs> it's, it's a lot <laughs> i'm very creative <laughs> it sounds like it and you know on the podcast what i like to do is not so much talk about what people do now but figure out the the path that led them there. I think that's where all the cool stories come from. But with you, I probably want to talk more about what you what you do because I think that's the story. But can you give us the quick rundown on where were you born, where you grew up, that sort of thing? And then I kind of want to know how you kind of got to do all these things. 
Well, I grew up um, along the coastal Marin headlands in California. So just on the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, and actually, I was born in San Francisco um, and lived right next to Golden Gate Park when I was an infant. Um, and um, so I grew up along that the headlands. So my house where I lived was along the creek, which led, and I would walk up to seven miles to, to this one stable when I was about, when I started about nine years old. I mean, I was riding horses before then along the creeks and stuff and in the valleys of Mount Tam, Mount Tamapias. And um, when I was about nine, I, we, I got my first horse um, at this stable. So I would, I would walk up to seven miles along the Estero up to the ranch and then get on my, my horse and go to the beach. So I, I grew up riding along the beach and in the natural, in the headlands before it was a public place. So the, the Golden Gate National Recreation Area already owned it, but it was still dairies and the dairies were being, one dairy was converted to a horse facility. Um, and, but the people, the public wasn't on there yet. So I grew up, I was very fortunate to grow up on the back of my, of a bareback running around the hills by myself. And so the animals and the land became my teachers. The, the, the forest and the plants and the creeks were my, you know, friends and man, my teachers and, and the ocean. So I just grew up in this really rich sort of wonderland in a sense on my own, like in the sense of not being around a lot of people, but also full of friends being more nature based. And I think I was also really very, um, dyslexic. So I didn't really track in language and I didn't really want anybody to know. Uh, it was like my secret. I was trying to not let people know that I wasn't really tracking a lot of times and I was really struggled in school. And I just, um, going back and reviewing my life, look, I really saw how much I really relied on the energy of, of people and communication. And, and f because I got to grow up around horses they that's how they live in the world and that's how they perceive and that's what they respond to. And so they were giving me a lot of confirmation and affirmation about what I was seeing and feeling, even though a lot of the, in the human world, there was a lot of incongruencies, so to speak, between the energy of what was happening and, and their, their energy and then what they were saying. So I was just sort of the quiet student of that. And, um, and then went on to, um, UC Davis and majored in zoology. And that's where I worked with the raptors. So I um, became a raptor specialist and helped re release or rehab and release birds of prey, like hawks, eagles, and owls um, so that we could release them back into the wild. And I also worked in the non-domestic ward at UC Davis, which is all the animals that aren't cats or dogs or horses. And so that was, um, alligators, snakes, birds, turtles, zoo animals, panthers, um, all kinds of things and loved it. Just that was just really, um, again, in my world. But the wild animals that I grew up with, plus the ones I was helping to rehab, taught me the same lessons that the horses did. And at that time, I just, it was my own little private world. I didn't really know how to express that um, or share that with anybody else. Because in, in college, this is interesting, Warwick, in college, my biology teachers were telling us that animals don't have feelings. They don't feel emotions, they said. Like when the otters are playing and we're all laughing and smiling in, with joy watching them, they were saying they don't, they're not feeling joy. 
they're just doing they're, what they need to do to survive. And I would get into sort of arguments with my professors, like, how could that, that's not to the point of tears. Like, so I was being told in that system that these animals don't have feelings and they're not sensitive and sensate. And um, so I felt very alone, I guess, in a sense, um, but, at, but connected at the same time, you know, to the, uh, to the, to the natural world. And um and I was a pre-med and I was a pre-vet because uh, I was supposed to be a doctor and I didn't really want to be a doctor of people. So I thought I'll be a doctor of, of animals. Um, so I did, I did that. And I always um, took an art class to kind of keep myself sane. And then during college, I got to work at all these different horse ranches, which was great because I got to see a lot of different disciplines and different ways that people worked with horses. And even when I was younger, because my horse moved from stable to stable. So we started out in Tennessee Valley, Muir Beach, Bolina, Stinson, up along the coastline. And every every stable had its own way. You know, this is the way you do horses. And if you don't do it this way, there was definitely an insinuation that you were wrong or bad. Um, and by that time I got into high school, I thought, I've seen some really good horse people and I've seen some not very good ones. And I, by then I'd already kind of chosen sort of the the way that worked for me um, with horses. So, and when I graduated from college, I became a single mother and, uh, I was, and I started training horse and rider cause I, I never broke that chain, you know, like some people will go off to college and not bring their horse. Like I, I've, I've been with horses since I was a little girl. So, um, and I just took other odd jobs. I, I did a plant maintenance business actually, which was before it's time. Um, and I became an artist. I became a professional artist actually for a while, um, until computers got really started taking over, you know, some of the, the, the natural creativity of, of the handwork. Can we go back to, well, I want to talk about UC Davis cause you know, you're from California or you're from the U S so you spit that out and people know what you're talking about, <laughs> but people from the other parts of the world. So UC would stand for university of California and UC Davis is one of the preeminent veterinary schools in the US. And so it's interesting, one second you're telling me that I was dyslexic and I didn't track words very well, and the next thing you're like pre-med at UC Davis. I mean, how does how do you go from not been able to track conversations and, you know, how do you go with, say, if, with, with dyslexia and then end up being, you know, at one of the top universities in one of the hardest, taking one of the hardest paths there is, like to be a vet? How did all that take place? That's a really good question. I think when I was younger, I learned how to try to just narrow my focus. Um, and I knew that I could, I, I, I only took 12 units, whereas many students would take 15 and only three of those would be the sciences and one would be an art class. So the art class would give me time to kind of soften my mind and get into my intuitive landscape and just relax the brain cells. Um, the, the science, most of the sciences actually are three-dimensional. So I'm dyslexic, but I'm three-dimensional. So I see things in shapes and forms, and most of science is like that. So as long as I could see it three-dimensionally, 
then that worked. But in terms of book studying, I would have to read everything. I still have to read everything five times. Um, I have to really concentrate. I can't read all the words. I have to pick certain words out and in a sense, like create a shape or form out of them. And numbers I can do fine with too. So science has a lot to do with math and numbers. So I'm, I'm okay there. Um, but the textbooks, you know, the old saying where you put your textbook under your pillow at night and hopefully you'll, some of it, will. <laughs> I tried that, <laughs> but what I would have to do, cause again, three being three dimensional, also being uh, spatial is also being kinesthetic. So, um, what I would do is I would study, I would highlight my books. So my books are all written in. Then I would write notes down. So I'd read it a second time and write pages of notes. Then I would read it again, read my notes and distill that down to one page. And then I would distill that down again to a, you know, a, a note card. So it was a very lengthy process for me compared to some of my friends who would just be able to take those tests and and also that I had a daily extra daily practices with my animals. So with the horses and with the other wildlife. So that kept me sane, I think too. Right. You know, it's interesting that you said that your professors were telling you that, you know, animals don't feel things. And that was the, I think back then and probably possibly still to this day, but in the scientific field, anthropomorphizing is, criminal you know you can't do it and right now i'm just i'm reading a book you've probably read the book it's called beyond words what animals think and feel i haven't read that one Safina. no you haven't read it so chrissy mcdonald so mark rashett's wife chrissy mcdonald told me about this book and oh my goodness i mean i'm i've been reading it at night time and i've got a i've got a highlighter <laughs> and i highlight the cool stuff i might as well highlight the whole book <laughs> but it's it's right? yeah it's called what animals think and feel and it looks at um the follow elephants in Amboseli National Park which is in um Amboseli is in the bottom of Kenya right by um Mount Kilimanjaro this I'm I'm still in the elephant part the second part of the book is um I think it's wolves in Yellowstone and I think the third part is humpback whales or some sort of whale somewhere but it could be one of the coolest books I've ever read. Oh, I'm going to read Just it. But, absolutely, um, absolutely amazing. But what you know, the trouble you had with your professors in in this book, they're talking about how you know the scientific world has, for the longest time, said that you know you cannot project you know human emotions and stuff onto animals, and. One part, there, was, there was one line and it said something like, the animal nervous system is not the human nervous system. And her reply was, what you have to realize is the human nervous system is an animal nervous system. We are animals. Yeah, right. That's why I call it, when I do my work, I, I, we talk about our animal body. And that's a whole other subject matter. But that's a, the, there's so much richness in what you just said. Because even when I was doing a lot of leadership stuff and learning leadership, Though the philosophy, the background philosophy is that we're somehow, you know, basically in all of these sciences, we're somehow the one animal above mm. all of the rest. And we somehow have this sense of knowledge and language that no other animals have, which separates us, which I've never agreed with. And I've always had a really difficult time with that. 
And even in, in a lot of leadership circles, they would, you know, combat literally about, well, animals don't live, have language. And I'm like, okay, then how do you, how do you understand that in an elephant society, when one of the elephants dies, they come back two years later to spread the bones. Like, cause they'll say like, well, animals can't say, Hey, we'll meet to have coffee on Friday. But I'm like, well, then how do you explain that the elephants come back two years later or how, how birds migrate, you know, et cetera, and so on. And so it, it gets into, um, you know, kind of a interesting, but controversial conversation. Um, and we are animals and, and that's the coming home, coming home to ourselves is coming back to, our animal nature, our bodies, an instinctive social being. And actually our social instincts are very much like the horses, which is a, why I think a lot of like we can do the different kinds of things we can do. There's an instant sort of recognition somewhere. Again, a big topic, but I wanted to just say something about the anthropomorphism because a lot of people say, well, you can't anthropomorphize. And I remember one time somebody made a, there was a line and I can't remember like the literal words, but I, I get the essence of it. But if you start to think about it, like we're now we're saying that humans have emotions and animals don't. So yes, of course, animals have emotions. Like I've, I've been playing experiments where, where I have, well, I'll have, I'll, I'll show people a video clip of birds. Let's say one was um, little shorebirds running in with the water, right? Like how do they know that? that wave isn't going to just, I mean, these are little teeny birds, right? Isn't going to just like the knowledge, the symmetry and the connection that they all have together, but I'll show the video. And then I hear everybody laughing and they see everybody smiling. And I'm like, so we are having an emotional response, but that doesn't mean the animal's not having an emotional response. So the animal, have, of course the animals have emotions. I think that um, that's my philosophy anyway. So there's nothing, I don't see there's anything that's not, so maybe we have to bust the myth of anthropomorphism, but I think the other, the other side of it is we do have to be careful not to project our story, our interpretation of the, of the animals on the animals. Like, Oh, that poor horse, he looks, he's alone. Cause he's not with the other horses. Well, actually, no, he's a sent or she's a sentinel. She has a different role in the herd. You know, so those are like two different things. That's ma managing your own projections and your own, you know, interpretations. And on the other side, animals still have, can have a range of emotions. Like I've seen horses cry when people, when have, there was somebody's telling a really sad, sad story. And I'm not, I try to not show them that I want to see if they notice it and they notice they go, the, is the, the horse is crying, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. The whole, the thing about, and I talk about this quite a bit at clinics, you know, I say we're always told not to anthropomorphize, but what we forget and, and, and in the umbrella of don't anthropomorphize, we forget to what I call mammalize. Mm. meaning we forget to say that's a mammal, I'm a mammal, and we share the same nervous system, and the nervous system works exactly the same way. And so is that a human emotion we're projecting onto that animal, or is that a mammal mammalian response to 
whatever's going on that we share with them. You know what I mean? It's, it's, and, you know, well, I, yeah, I, yeah, and, I, and birds too. So ornithology and, and, mam- and the um, fish, you know, like in the lizards, I mean, like all those things too, right? So, and there is, thank goodness, growing scientific as evidence that we do energetically will start to resonate, not just within our own species, but interspecies. Yeah, I think that's really good about some of the cool stuff that we can measure these days. It's almost like, well, you're talking about with animals right there, but really, if you're getting down to it, it's a bit about spirituality. And it's almost like science these days can quantify things that in the past have been woo-woo or spiritual or whatever, you know what I mean? And And it's kind of the same thing with the animals. You can do fMRIs and, you know, things like that to actually prove scientifically what's going on. And, and what I find really interesting, especially like in the um, psychiatry world, is a lot of the things they are talking about or discovering these days, you know, especially like with fMRI, you know, functional fMRIs, things like that, is it's basically proving indigenous wisdom right mm-hmm. you know what i mean like you know i i think for a long time we were a certain way and then you know with the oh well if you go back ten thousand years ago when we started to grow more food than we could eat sort of thing so we're no longer hunter gatherers but then if you think about before the industrial revolu- revolution everybody was connected to animals because if you wanted to get a long distance you had to ride a ride a horse and there was no supermarket sort of thing you know what i mean um you know we've got away from a lot of practices that we actually evolved to to our nervous system needed those practices and we've got away from those things and i think we're slowly finding our way back to them and i think science is kind of helping us find our way back to them but what we're finding out is oh yeah indigenous practices were (laughs) were there for a reason well and i i like to think that every one of us still has that indigenous memory or indigenous wisdom. It's just that maybe we, for some of us, it's been taught out of us or discouraged or made wrong. Um, And we come from different cultures, but all cultures root back to the earth and that interrelationship, you know, I, I keep wanting to bring up this book. Have you read David Abrams, the spell of the sensuous? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I love the part. Yeah, I love the part where he talks about the ma- the magician or the sh- the ma- magic is really the, the ability to shift consciousness at will and that the shaman or medicine person's first allegiance is to the earth and the local network of beings and then secondarily to to human nature and sort of like I mean to humans to humans but he also talks about in there where even like the word native used to be a powerful word and then you know the the governing kind of systems that want to keep down let's say individuality and and self-expression made that a a a negative word a negative connotation you know and and now it feels like we're coming back to that that the native practices the indigenous practices of respecting earth and staying connected to earth and giving back to the earth and saying thank you is is actually fundamentally 
part of how we need to reconnect. It's like you said, like when I'm teaching my classes, I like to remind everybody, like it was less than maybe 120 years ago that we didn't have, let's say we didn't have electricity and we didn't have running water and you had to carry the bucket of water, not just for yourself, but for your animals. So you, you thought, probably thought twice about how many horses you had if you had to carry that bucket of water for every horse up, you know, up from the creek, but, but walking and carrying and being in nature. And even if I even like try to think back, you know, when, when it was just horses and you'd go to town and, and some people were riding horses and some people had carriages and, you know, all of that. And the horses are not static beings. So they're negotiating and they're, you know, making noise. And you, you had to have a lot of that 360 degree awareness that you have to have around horses. Right. So we all have a lot more common sense in a sense, because we had to be more perceptive to what was around us as a good survival skill. And then, you know, now fast forward, we, we live in, you know, concrete cities and, and electricity, which to be that sensitive in that kind of system is, is maybe a little bit more difficult. So we get desensitized, you know, and so that finding that new, finding that new balance of coming back to, like you said, some of the native, the, our nativeness or the basically the way we evolved you know, it's 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 normal for for our nervous system to work that way our nervous system is not meant to be doing living life like we're living right now um no. you know and i've talked about this quite a bit in the podcast but like these phones that we have that mm. you know mm-hmm. and especially like social media when you get dings and beeps and thumbs up and hearts and whatever, you know, we're not, me- we're not meant to have that much dopamine in, in any way, shape or form. And I've talked about in the podcast before that, I, you know, I've suffered from depression for quite a long time or, or have in the past, I think I'm pretty good now, but um, did a um, neurotransmitter test a couple of years ago and like they said, oh, you're, you're basically running on empty. You have no dopamine, no serotonin, no norepinephrine. You're just like flat. Hmm. And one of the things that, so I've, have you ever read a book called Dopamine Nation? No, but I've heard about it. Yeah. Um, and so I read a book called Dopamine Nation and then I was listening to the Huberman Lab podcast where he talked about dopamine and you have a set level of dopamine and then you have dopamine spikes, like you eat some good food, dopamine, whatever the dopamine spikes are. But the more dopamine spikes you have, the lower your set level is. So when you're not eating a tasty food or whatever, you don't have something giving you dopamine, you basically have have none. And the thing that the thing that restores dopamine or, or raises your set level of dopamine is pain, discomfort. Mm. The way we used to live to where we didn't have air conditioners and heaters and Blah, 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 blah. And so one of the things I've been doing for several years, my wife's really got into it now, is ice baths. So I actually, Hmm. I just had one here a little while ago before we came on here. Um, And in the human lab thing, they talked about ice baths and how much dopamine it gives you. It actually gives you, so I think sex and cocaine give you the same amount of dopamine. An ice bath actually gives you more dopamine. Hmm. But it's not a spike. It stays there for a long time and it helps reset your... Your dopamine level. But the, anyway, the point I'm getting at here is life used to be hard. 
we we actually yeah. evolved to live in the elements and feel the heat and feel the cold and be good with it and and yeah the more comfortable you know we're trying to get to where life's easier but i don't think life's meant to be easy and that's where a lot of the mental health stuff comes from or whatever and 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 it's also you spend a lot of time in your head versus in your body where you're supposed to be and i do think that the the horse stuff brings us back to that and that's where i want to kind of want to go with um, our next bit of a chat quite a while ago you founded leadership and horses and equine guided education and coaching this is uh, you you've i don't know you'd know but you've got to be one of the people who've been doing it the longest haven't you like like this was in the 80s it wasn't a lot of it right back then was it yeah i started putting leadership and horses together in in the late 80s like 1980 1989 and um and what i called intuitive horsemanship so i was training the horse and rider and then um i was taking leadership classes um partly being a being that single mother i was you know i joined the chamber of commerce and was trying to make my own little business there and so i was getting an opportunity to take a lot of leadership classes and then i started studying somatics um and i started putting them all together and actually, I did Aikido for a while, which is kind of interesting because um, Sally Swift did Aikido, and she did Aikido with George Leonard, who w- was really wrote Mastery. Yeah, yeah, and he he had a dojo in Mill Valley, and my ex husband, who I started dating, was um, they were partners, and so I started doing Aikido, and your husband and George Leonard were partners. Yeah, Aikido oh, partners. We all just got a lot. The world just got a lot smaller. <laughs> one of the earlier, one of the earlier episodes of the podcast was called "Books That Have Influenced Me," and oh, one okay. of them was "Mastery" by George Leonard. Yeah, and I so knew here him. we are. Two years I later, you're telling me the story. Yeah, well, the world yeah, just got and I smaller. and actually, his daughter was had her horse boarded at at one of the my stables when I was growing up for a while too, Lily Leonard. Um, and um, anyhow, so. I brought it up because Sally Swift figured something, you know, centered riding out from the Aikido influence. And I know later Mark Rashid started doing some Aikido stuff and the way that Aikido that I was learning and that George Leonard was also the, one of the master teachers of is about, you know, moving um, from your center and which would be in horsemanship, our seat, same place, you know, but moving from center and extending your energy and blending. So blending with your opponent or blending with your partner. And so I was studying that. And one day I thought, gosh, you know, I've been doing Aikido with horses my whole life. I just never thought of it like that. And so I started (laughs) playing with it like that. And then I started, and I had a very intuitive or telepathic horse. And I remember at one point going, um, gosh, I, he made the change before I asked for the change. But when I looked back at my own inner, I had already made the intention I had already made the plan and I had telepathically already sent it to him. So he actually was totally listening to me. I just hadn't given him an external cue. And so I started playing with that. You know, I thought, well, what if, if I didn't do anything, I didn't move my, my seat bones or my bones or anything, my muscles. And I just had an intention and it kind of blew me away. Right. And so I'm doing all these things. And one day I was like practicing some lead, you know, the more you learn about leadership, it's really about your way of being your presence, do people trust you? How do you build trust? How do you, you know, have confidence in yourself? All those things. And I thought, who better to tell you when you're being present and centered than a horse? The horse is always going to tell you. 
So I started bringing, by then I, I was working with, I, would, I had the Aikido students, I had, there were somatic students, I had leadership, and I started bringing these people out to practice their awareness, basically. So moving from center, extending, blending, and at that time we were lunging horses, you know, in a lunging circle, and it blew me away because the people were like, oh my God, this is what's happening in my real life. Like whatever was happening in the relationship with the horse, whether they were going they really weren't centered or they were being too aggressive or they were um, having a lot of self-judgment or, or they were too shy or anything. It was just completely mirrored on the horse. And, and my goal was to not be practicing or training horsemanship. It was really about your own self development, you know? And, um, and so I didn't expect that. So I said, well, let's work with your real life issue or your relationship. And, and see if we can make a change in that. And so that's how Leadership in Horses was born. And at first I used to call it Leadership Somatics and Horses. And you can imagine in 1989, like people were like, whatever. And, and like people were like, oh, Ariana, that's kind of, you know, oh, that's nice. You know, and then, especially with all, you know, in the horse training world with people I had grown up with that were also horse trainers. Um, and, but I was just so fascinated with it, Warwick. I couldn't not do it. And, um, so that work, and then what, uh, that work evolved. And then in the late nineties, um, other people started coming out of the woodwork. So like Egala and EFMA and, and some of those kind of things. And I started thinking, well, what to me that the horse does more than this is just my opinion, does more than assist and facilitate the horse is the process in when we're, when we switch the coin. So there, there's two different worlds. There's horsemanship, and there's what I call equine guide education or any other equine therapy type of thing where we're, so it's either like, there's a great um, definition of the rider in, in a European language. And I don't remember what it is. That's by dyslexia part. But I remember the, the, the quote, which is two definitions of the word rider. One is a person who uses the horse to, to get something done or go somewhere. And the other one who is the person who cultivates their self through their relationship with their horse. And so two different, two different things. Um, so I thought, well, and so I liked the word guide. I did a lot of word research and I thought the word guide means to take one into unknown or unexplored territory, which is this different state of consciousness that we're kind of tapping into. And, and I liked the word. I also, at that time, that was like 1999. I liked that word because people had a pretty negative, sometimes people have a negative connotation of the word leadership because underneath it's like the, the unconscious human interpretation is that leadership is a dominant subordinate system and that to be right. a leader, you have to be more than better than or smarter than somebody else. And that's just not what it is in the animal kingdom at all. It's something that humans created, but it's not the essence and the, the true nature. Um, and so I like the word guide because when we're like training a horse or we're riding the horse, we may have to be the leader or the guide of the purpose and the direction. Like this is where we're going. This is what we're doing. But the horse is always the guide of the psycho-spiritual realm. And I think any master of horsemanship finds themselves in that position at some point where it's like, whatever I'm trying to do isn't working. I need to stop and I need to listen to the horse. And the horse is trying to tell me something. So either I'm not lined up in my true intentions or I'm saying to do something, but I'm distracted 
or sometimes there's something with the horse. Like Kansas actually once made this line and she actually wrote a poem about it. And um, it's, you know, some horse is not meant to ride. And I'm sure you probably had that experience. Like um, in one of the conversations you and I had where there's just some horses where there's something that's not right. There's something not aligned. And, and so the, the guide, the, the psycho spiritual, the horse is always the guide to that. Um, so the horse will always be my teacher in that realm. And so we can trade hats. So it's a reciprocal relationship. So I like that word guide because it creates that respect on both sides. And so then in 2004, I, I held eight international conferences and I brought everybody that was anybody at that point to, to together, literally in person in California for a three-day conference. And um, so, you know, all the people that would be sort of the original, Linda Kohenoff, Barbara Rector, Lynn Thomas, you know, um, David Harris, Gerhard Krebs, like all around the world. And we made a timeline um, on a wall. So we, we were in an old schoolhouse in the country and we put this big piece of paper along the whole wall and everybody put on the wall where they first shifted into this other kind of consciousness relationship with horses. So it wasn't that the first time they were a horse trainer, it was when they really started to get into whatever they call this other work that we do, equine guided, equine assisted, equine facilitated. And so that was really neat that we have that history chronicled. And, you know, I think too, you know, once you have an idea, it's either already out in the ethernet of the, of the, the energy ethernet, either you tapped into it or you might've had the first in idea of it, but it goes out in the airwaves. And so I'd say in like 1990, like Paul Hunting started doing a leadership with horses program on his own too. And it just wasn't until the mid nineties when the internet started to connect us together where like, cause people would start saying like, right. Oh, who else is out there doing this kind of thing? So. Uh, have you ever read big magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? Nope. <laughs> oh, cause she wrote, she's the one that wrote eat, pray, love, but yeah, big magic is about the creative process and that you actually manifest stuff out of the mm. collective conscious, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sounds like there was a bit of that, that going on there. So it says on my notes here that you're a pioneer in the field of horses as healers and teachers. And you, you sound a bit like, like for me in the last four or five years, like doing clinics, I've been, I've been focused on, relationship first like working on relationship and communication before training and so the good thing about doing clinics is i would get to work with 12 different horses every weekend and so you get to experience a, a vast range of horses and you start to figure out what works and what doesn't and things like that but anyway i would i would experiment with stuff and like oh yeah this this works you know, this is this is a uh, this is an idea that came to me working with horses. No one told me this. I didn't read it somewhere. But very soon after I figured it out, I'd read it somewhere. Somebody else has been doing it for a lot longer than I have. You know what I mean? It yeah. Was, it was yeah. Pretty funny. Well, and instead, and and in a way, it's it becomes con- affirming. Like, okay, I, good. I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one out there that thinks this. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think at any point in time I, I considered I was crazy because the horses were telling me this is a good idea. 
You know what I mean? This soothes my soul. This makes me feel better in my own body. This makes me more comfortable around people. This resets my nervous system. You see all the all the trauma responses kind of leaving them and things like that. So, yeah, I was never worried about what anybody else thought as far as, oh, I don't think I'm crazy. Um, I remember one time early on in this journey of this stuff, I was doing a clinic in mm, somewhere in Wisconsin maybe, but I, I said into the microphone, I said, you know what? I'm getting some weird stuff, but I'm not going to like put on an orange robe and shave my head and stand out here in the arena and chant unless I have to. <laughs> Meaning, hey, whatever we got to do to make these to help these horses That's feel right. better, I I'm going right? to do it now. Yeah, I'm not going. I'm going to not going to put an orange road and shave my head and chant unless I have unless to. I have to. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know that piece you said about the um, where I've been lately um, is helping people to see to build a new understanding of the word leadership. And really I see it as that mathematical formula. So leadership equals relationship. That's all it is. It's just leadership is just relationship. How am I relating to myself, who I am, what I care about, how am I relating to others, which could be the horse. And then how am I relating to my, my world, the world, which is my values and my ethics and my destiny, you know, my contribution. So that kind of helps demystified yeah i do think with horses people tend to think leadership is that old outdated dominance theory of looking at things like there's a yeah. there's a number one and a number two and if i'm number two that means my horse is number one he's going to tell me what to do and i want to tell him what to do so i need to be number one he needs to be number two whereas you know that whole dominance theory has been um debunked and i'm actually going to have lucy reese on the podcast sometime soon so she's going to be a good one to to talk about that um, but that, yeah, that's an old paradigm that everybody had with the horses, but yeah, it's, it's more about, it's, it's, it's a fluid thing. It's like a dance. It's a fluid thing. Like when do I need to take over the leadership role? When do I need to hand it over to them and allow them to take over the leadership role? And yeah. I think, I, I think part of the trouble I see a lot of people have is being able to tell and, and, you know, I'm not, I do, I do clinics helping people with their horses. So it's not necessarily supposed to be a healing, you mm. know, situation. Mm. It's not supposed to be a transformational situation. A lot of times it is, but they don't come along because it's, they're signing up for some sort of a transformational weekend. Right. But trying to, people trying to, the, the art, I think, is, is knowing when you can take control and when you have to let go of control. Because if you try to control a situation that's, that you should be allowing, you know, you should be handing over the leadership role to them and you don't recognize it as such. You don't recognize that moment when you should do that. You're basically communicating to your horse your lack of awareness and then that lack of awareness, you're communicating to them your lack of awareness and now they have a lack of trust in you and then it goes downhill from there. So, yeah, it's 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 like, I don't know, it's like balancing a broom on your hand, you know, like you've mm -hmm. got to move it around all over the place, yeah. Right, right. I like that. I like that metaphor. Yeah. But that's 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 the that's the fun stuff. But let's go back a bit. I'm I did a clinic in England a few years ago and while I was doing this clinic my wife and son were with me and they went off for the day and they had a look around. Um they went to a car museum or something or other. <laughs> but in this field next to the car museum 
there was a raptor display and they watched this mm. guy with these raptors and they both came home and they go, oh, the thing you're trying to help people with their horses, you absolutely need to be able to do that to work with a raptor. And they were telling me some of the stuff that this guy had said. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's the stuff. So tell, tell me a bit about the raptors. That kind of, that's fascinating. They're amazing. I mean, they're, they're amazing when they're free. I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody not inspired by, you know, a hawk flying or eagle. Um, <clears throat> but when, when, they're, when they've been wounded and in the rehab, I was always really amazed how they would allow us to take care of them. I mean, we would be holding them in our hands, you know, so... Um, first to, you know, assess injuries and things. But once they were in the rehab process, um, they would come from the vet school and let's say a lot of them just get either shot, you know, so the wing gets um, damaged or sometimes they lose their wing. So we also had raptors that were what we called non-releasable that we would train to the fist to take out and educate people about them to try to teach people not to shoot them. They're not really eating, right. you know, all your stuff. So it was amazing to me. Like, like I, I just will never forget this one particular, um, and it happened all the time, but this one great horn owl with the big yellow eyes. And I had her in my hands and, um, she just was looking at me. And I mean, that's the thing with the wild animals. They look right into you and, you know, they I was going to say, I bet you. she looked completely into you. <laughs> they do. And they, you, they can kill you if they want, you know, they can, I mean, they rip flesh. Right. right. And so, um, and I just, you know, all the times I would just be like, I'm here to help you, you know, um, just trust me. And, and, and they did and they would. And so, one of the things, my mom was a physical therapist. And so we were getting these, these, um, animals, the hawks and the eagles and the owls, they would kind of have these frozen wings. And so a lot of them by the time, cause they'd over bandaged them for too long. Mm. I mean, we've gone a long way since then. And so I brought my mom out because I knew the birds and their form and function and she knew, um, physical therapy. And so we created a therapy program that ended up being in all raptor centers around the country. Um, where we would um, do massage on their wings. So I would hold the bird, um, let's say a hawk or an owl, whatever, in my – so some of them we would have to put um, a mat, you know, their, the little face, little hood on because this helps to calm them down. Some some species are more riled up than others. And then I would hold, have them wings folded in my up against my chest with them facing away from me. And then I would take their legs and I would, let's say the injury was on the left wing. I would drop the bird to the left. So he would have to try to instinctively, you know, reflexively reach his wing out and, um, to catch himself. And that became really successful at, um, retraining the atrophied muscles and retraining the memory because the, they have to have a hundred percent flight on both wings. It's, it's not, not an option. They they can't fly without that. That was, that was pretty amazing. And feeling that partnership. I think it's the same thing. Like when, with horses, when you have that, when you in, have those like really amazing moments where you're just so in unity, I call it unity or so aligned. And you know, you're just, 
one and the same. You're one. There's a oneness. And having that with the birds in the same way. Um, and and it, the other thing, too, which was not an easy thing to do is because we would keep them in their, in big, like cages, like almost the size of a stall, right? So maybe two, and usually keeping two together, if, if not more. But, you know, how do you go up to a wild hawk and catch it? Right? Because it's going to fly... And then the more it flies, it damages feathers. And the more it's feathers damaged, the more it can't fly. So you had to be really good at coming. So I would have my, my, um, my gloved hand behind my back. And that doesn't do anything, as you know. Um, But I would have a different conversation with the bird. So I'd make this eye contact and I would make this bond with the bird. And then my hand would just come out and grab their legs. Um, but if I was thinking, just like with horses, if I was thinking, I'm going to grab the bird now, it'd fly away. So it was a lot of training in building this whole other connection and, and being mindless in it. Yes. Yeah. Being, having your mind totally, totally clear. Have you ever read a book called The Sense of Being Stared At by Rupert Sheldrake? No, I've read his, uh, the dogs that know when their owners are coming home. The dogs that know when their owners are coming home, yeah. Um, (laughs) In that book, it was called The Sense of Being Stared At. And in that (laughs) book, he talks to a lot of uh, like safari guides and big Mm. game hunters in Africa. And they were saying that when you go out in the morning, if you're thinking, I want to see this animal, you don't see them. Yeah. Especially hunters. Like if a hunter is saying, I want to, so they learn to, keep their mind basically kind of clear. He also talked about, he talked to um, US spies who were in mm. uh, Russia during the Cold War. And they're talking about when you are tracking someone else down the street, you cannot think about them. Yeah. You cannot look directly at them. You yeah. have to be aware of them in your peripheral vision because if they are a spy, their little spidey senses are turned on like most animals are and they can sense that you are, staring at them and I so I grew up on a farm in Australia and we had sheep and wheat and when it was lambing season those ewes would lay down and they have a hard time getting up when they lay down if they're full in wool or whatever but the crows would land on them and peck their eyes out while they were mm-hmm. giving birth mm-hmm. and so now they can't see and they're going to die but the crows would eat their eat their eyes and so dad you know he if he was either out on a horse or out on the motorbike somewhere just checking on sheep and he saw crows he'd go home and get a rifle because he's going to come back and shoot the crows and he said whenever i had the rifle i never saw any crows and he always thought the rifles could tell i mean the crows could tell what the rifle was but after i read that book i'm like no it's your intention mm-hmm. they can tell they can sense your intention you only carry the rifle when you're looking to shoot crows. And I was like, oh, yeah. That, so that just flipped that switch about that story that the crows can can see you carrying the rifle. He never carried the rifle unless he was going to shoot crows. So, <laughs> yeah. No, I remember once uh, like outside the back door there was, you know, maybe 20 or 30 quail. And um, my husband at the time um, thought, oh, I'm going to get my gun and I'm going to go get some quail. And so he left the room and I watched the quail and literally he wasn't even back with the gun or anything, but literally they were all like, they kind of looked at each other and they kind of looked at the house and they kind of like, 
fucking, we better get out of here. And they kind of like, <laughs> and they were gone. <laughs> By the time he came back, they were gone. <laughs> but I saw it in action. I saw him going, <laughs> yeah, and, and that's the that's the stuff that fascinates me these days is the natural world, how it works and how we need to get back to it. You know, there's a really good book I read a few years ago be called Oh God, what's it called? It's I can see the name, it's got two words and I can't think of them right now, but in that in that book, they talk about a a tribe, a West African tribe called the Anglo Iwe tribe. Hmm. I almost had the word. I almost yeah, had yeah. the title <laughs> of the book come back to me. Um, the Anglo Iwe tribe, and, and they say we have nine or ten senses, um, apart from the five that we we consider senses. And one of the senses is the sense. They 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 think balance is one of our senses because it aligns us with the exact centre of the earth. Mm. Mm. But another one of their senses is what they call sesesalame. And sesesalame translates into English as feel, feel with the flesh from the inside out. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's like our sense of intuition. That's like our, you know, reading energy. That is that sort of thing. And, and, that it's a normal part of what they do and they don't try to drum it out of their children. You know, you're supposed to have that. Mm-hmm. And so right. imagine, you know, can you imagine, can you imagine how we would all be if society embraced that and was talked about and, you know, oh. at school it got talked about, you know what I mean? I think we would have a lot more compassion. Yeah for ourselves and for other people there's a book that you would like it's called um it's called the 13 senses and it um it's a mexican-american author victor villasenor um he also wrote i think reign of gold which beautiful beautiful book but this one was about his grandparents who came into the into the united states and so the 13 senses is the men have six and the women have seven and together they make up the whole. I thought that was mm. kind of fascinating. Um, and being on the coast, and when we're when I'm working with people with the horses, I try to encourage them to explore that we have more than the senses that we've been told we have. I mean, it can even be the ions in the air and feeling the weight of the air or the lightness of the air or the water molecules in the air. Like that's a sense. And you know, there's there's. Um, in every, wherever our cultures or regions are, like for me, it's like the wind tells me different things, right? Or the ocean. But like for people in snow, like there's different kinds of snow. And um, or the, the there was a Japanese um, boatman just on a boat on the water. And he could touch the water on the sea and tell you when the next storm was coming. You know, that's a lot like some of the stories that when Rupert Sheldrake, oh, Rupert Sheldrake, not Rupert Sheldrake, <laughs> Rupert Isaacson was on the podcast. <laughs> and maybe it was during the podcast, maybe it was afterwards, but he was he was talking about, you know, he spent a lot of time with um, the Khoisan Bushmen in the Kalahari and they're some of the, you know, last remaining original hunter-gatherers. And they can, you know, from a footprint, they can not only tell you 
what animal it was. They can tell you what sex it was. They can tell you how high it was. Uh, mm. They can tell you if it was pregnant or if it wasn't. They can mm. tell you if it was hungry. If it was, they can. There's a there's an mm. energetic signature that's left there. That if you know how to read that signature, you can you can get a lot more information out of it. And that that's the stuff that fascinates me these days. And I, I'm not sure if it's, it's a chicken or the egg thing. Like, mm-hmm. do we have to heal to get those senses back, or will trying to unravel those senses heal us? You know what I mean? It's I, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a yeah, and I don't even think that you ever have to answer that question. That could just be the open an open inquiry, right? It kind of doesn't matter which one started the other. It's, it's the it's the reciprocal relationship. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think it matters. But the more I, the more aware, the more somatic stuff. You know, you you're really into somatic things. You're a master somatic coach, and you know, for me, I um, you know, I told you. I think I told you off air that I read a Brene Brown book that said, you know, you can't selectively suppress emotions. If you suppress the low ones, you automatically suppress the high ones. And that took me in a journey of trying to figure out how to get those high ones working, which takes you on a journey of you're going to have to put up with the lower ones. Now, the ones you are suppressing, mm. the fear, the dread, the grief, all those things, you've got to be able to work through those. Too and and, you know, and I think initially it's it's a matter of getting all your feelings back, and then you've got to be able to understand how to dance with them when they are back. And it's, um, yeah, for me, it's it's more like the the more I get that that stuff inside me working, the cooler the world gets. It's pretty cool, right? Well, and that's what I like about um, nature. And being with horses, not in a horse training kind of way, um, being in nature, observing nature is having it be a practice of how am I now? How do I feel now? And, and um, being, noticing whatever that mood is or whatever that feeling or emotion is. Um, and then, but staying in the present moment with your other surroundings um, and then like we've been having a recent conversation in this group that I have and it's like, what's the difference between being present and being in the moment, you know? So being in the moment, like that's something I think that, um, being in the moment and being present is something I feel like that horses can, can teach us and just being around them. I think we develop some of that. And I think the key, what you're saying right now is we may be having a lot of experiences and having these emotions and feelings, but if we're not aware of them, then we don't really have choice. So if we become aware of them, then we can start to choose if that's how I want to be or if I want to change that. You know, so our, our animal body is this animal instinctive body. It's just responding to the environment in the moment and sight, sound, smells. Well, you know, I always say like, our animal body is our first responder. It responds to everything first. And the mind comes along after the fact and makes up a story about it or a parent does, or somebody else does, you know? <laughs> um, but the animal body is just this instinctive thing going, I, do I feel safe? Do I not feel safe? Um, am I comfortable? I'm uncomfortable. And the body remembers everything. 
So it remembers all of our history, all the good stuff, the bad stuff, the traumas. So sight, just like horses, just like horses. So sight, sound, smells can trigger our body into, our animal body, into a historic memory. And then the mood and the fear or, or the emotion associated with that. If we're not aware of that, then we're just walking around in that, either that trauma or in that past past event. And we're in reaction or automaticity. But if we can develop that self-awareness to go, oh, okay, I'm feeling afraid right now. Why am I feeling afraid? Like what, what is triggering that? Um, oh, that's not my mom or um, this isn't the bad thing happening again and relaxing the body and, and, you know, saying it's okay. <laughs> right. Um, and that's where horses are really amazing and beautiful because when we're doing our own work on ourselves, our own self development or self healing, whatever we want to call that is the horses are sort of like the big energy mirrors of however we're being in the moment. And so if we're in a, when we, when our body, our animal body starts to get afraid, it starts to contract. It starts to get tense somewhere in our body, whether it's in our fingers or our hands or our back, even our, our mind can start to squeeze and clench or our eyes or, you know, our mouth can get tight. So if, if we're in holding in that state, then that creates only a very limited space of possibilities for us. And so learning how to open and relax the the mind, relax the muscles um, and the joints and that open state, I think, and I'm curious if you see that is where that's where we can find that unity with horses where they can also relax into that. Yeah. Yeah. I think they read a lot of that. You know, a minute ago you said there's something about becoming animal or something rather. Now you talked about the spell of the sensuous before. Have you read his other book, Becoming Animal? I'm pretty sure it's by David Abrams Mm-mm. as well. It's called no. Becoming Animal. And if it's not by him, I must have read it at about mm-hmm. the same time I read The Spell of the Sensuous, and it's a very similar, very similar type book. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. You just said something else a minute ago. You said something that, you know, when you're working on your self-development or your healing or, or whatever is how you put it. And I wrote those two words down, those three words down, self-development and healing. And it's almost like self-development, and, and, and this is probably, you're probably going to go, duh, yeah, but I, it just occurred to me, self-development mm-hmm. is healing because you are not actually developing something you're not. You're just shedding all the shit you've been carrying around that's preventing you from being who you are. Is, is that right? Okay, the I just I just yeah. I just had a moment. Yeah, I, I think just had you a said like, it really oh, good. It all makes it all makes sense. You're not. <laughs> I actually think you said it really well. Anything you're just trying to, you know, <laughs> you said something about self development or healing, and then I just like, well, hang on. I think they're yeah. the same thing. They're not separate from each other, <laughs> but yeah, you're not developing yourself. You are you are whole as you are. You just have to peel away the 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 layers and peel away the the walls and all the protections you've put up and underneath that is the the you and i and for me personally i think that's that's the quest is is not trying to be something you're not trying to figure out all that you are right 
it's like coming back home into yourself. Like I, when I'm, when I'm, you know, teaching or whatever with, I try to remind students that mother nature doesn't want everybody to be the same. She wants diversity. So we we're born, we're each born with a unique way of seeing, perceiving, expressing, and it's trying to come back home to that unique expression of who I am, who you are, which then feeds and contributes to the whole, you know, but we, we sometimes we do get pigeonholed by family or, um, or other people's expectations or shoulds to be something else. Then, you know, to, to, and so we, how, how, I mean, I just know so many people, we, we sort of walk away from some part of ourselves and then we hit that point where we have to try to walk back to ourselves or come home to ourselves. And it's each person's individual journey of that. There's not like, there's not, it's an, intu I feel like it's an intuitive process. It's, it's not a formulaic process. Yeah. Well, I know it's a, bloody long process but anyway i'm enjoying the, i'm enjoying the journey i'm enjoying the journey uh what else does it say here you've been so tell me about the art you were you were a professional artist for a while what did you what medium did you work in well i actually work in a, a, a lot of different mediums and i used to feel kind of self-conscious about that because people are like what what's your medium and i'm like well let's see where do i start um i do love the, just pen and ink and sumi painting which is japanese painting um brushstroke um, so the Sumi painting is very, it's very meditative and, you know, the artist, you, you have one stroke and you can't just go fix that line. So you're either in the groove of where you want to be and the, the story you want to tell, or you're not, you know, kind of thing. So sometimes I might have to do 15 or 20 just to loosen myself up enough to get the one image that I'm trying for. So I really love it for it's it, love it for that. It's because um, it has to come from the inside out. It just can't it can't come from your fingers or your hand or uh, even your shoulder. You know, it just really has to come through you. And you, it's kind of like we were talking earlier about looking at the birds and being with the birds or seeing the birds singing to me, me singing to the birds. It's like it's the same thing. So I do love those mediums and I do pastels as well. Um, and uh yeah, so for a while I was a graphic, mm. you know, graphic designer. Um and um and so did a lot of illustrations. So and now I'm just kind of uh getting back into it because mostly it's just for my own sort of soul work right now. It's just for me coming again, a different level of me coming back into myself. It's something um that I put aside. And now I I'm just feeling a lot of um <clears throat> a lot of draw to just get in there because it's so it's it taps into this whole intuitive place, you know. And so some of my drawings right now are um I'm gonna do I'm working on a you know card, you know, like some cards, so animal plant cards. Um so I have stories I've been writing like about the squirrel and about, you know, the dragonfly. And so they're um but the the squirrel is with all the parts of nature, so it's a it's a very complicated, not complicated. It's a very very connected with the acorn and the leaves of the tree, and trying to create a three dimensional story 
uh, on a one dimensional piece of paper. You know, you said something in there that reminded me of, so I've got a friend uh, that lives in Texas. He trains reining horses, but he, he, ha- he always takes up interesting um, hobbies. Uh, like for a while there, he was into to bonsai. He's, he's always, he always takes up hobbies that, that you have to be really, mm. really present to do like finicky sort of stuff. Well, recently he's got into yeah. drawing. And he's taken this this mm. art mm-hmm. course, and the the first exercise you have to do, and all the the work is done with a pen, so you can't erase anything. Is you draw a dot here and a dot there, and you want to draw a straight line from this dot to that dot using your shoulder, not using your wrist, but using your shoulder. Okay, and then you got to draw mm-hmm. four hundred of them, and then you got to do whatever, and then and then and then. But one of the but- one of the um exercises they get to is to draw a three-dimensional cube and when you draw this three-dimensional cube with a pen all the sides of it have to be exactly the same length but you draw it freehand and it's called the 250 cube challenge and so you have to draw 250 cubes each one all the sides are exactly the same length, but you're doing it freehand. You're not using a ruler. And it only counts as one if it's perfect. Like you draw one, you might have to draw a hundred of them to get the first one. Now you've got one and then you go and then you go. And right. so the, um, the course that he's taking, it's, it's like an online sort of a course sort of a thing. And so they've got like communities or whatever. I think you can submit, I think you submit your work and others critique it or whatever, but there's a little chat feature over on the side. And he was telling me a story about one lady said, I got up to cube 187. And while I was drawing cube 187, (laughs) suddenly I could see it. Whatever it is, Mm. but her perspective completely changed. Like she... Her, her mind went into what I imagine an artist's mind works like, like they see things differently and suddenly I could see it. And so I have an online, I have an online video library. That's my main business. Huh. And I've been videoing for 10, 11 years now. And so there's lots and lots of footage. There's so much footage from clinics of me working with horses and yada, yada, yada. And the people that get the most out of it, are not the people that watch one video on a particular thing. They watch every video on the particular thing, and they might see 30 or 40 horses working through the same thing. But all And if you watch enough of them, at some point in time, instead of seeing what he did right then or how this thing happened, you see, oh, I, I, I now understand every... I now kind of get how I could interact, how I could do that thing with any horse because I get the, you kind of get the reasoning behind it or whatever, you know what I mean? And a lot of people don't do that, but you get to where you you see it, whatever it is. You know, you have that innate understanding of, of something or other. But I wanted to, while, while you were talking about your artwork there and that, that Japanese thing with the flow thing, it made me think of Joe's, Joe's story about the 187th yeah. cube and I saw it. Yeah. I saw it. So it's it's a it's a you know, and that's a that's <laughs> yeah, like, right. that's like the the self development or the healing work or whatever. As you go along, this perspective changes, and you see things 
differently. And then because, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Wayne Dyer quote, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And when you have a perspective change and you see everything differently, everything is different. It's not just your perspective, it's your your interaction with it's different. And so I'm a big into, you know, quantum mechanics and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, how you interact with the world is how the interworld interacts with you. Yeah. I think too, a lot of it is learning how to get out of your own way, like learning how to get out of your self-consciousness, your self-conscious state. Cause then it's that being self-conscious and trying to do a piece of art doesn't, they don't go together. Um, kind of like being self-conscious and trying to train a horse doesn't or really dance. go together really either. So, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and so it's learning how to just, yeah, just give yourself permission. And, you know, I love that, that the 250, even if it only took 187, you know, cubes, but, right. and that's through a technical piece where, whereas, um, you know, just allowing your hand, you know, your, I mean, the pen coming from your center to just to do, to doodle and dwiddle. And cause you know, when I take art classes, that would be the, some of the exercises they would challenge us to do. Um, or, or like draw a picture in 30 seconds. Like, so we'd sit with the horses and we were 30 seconds and then the sheet of paper, 30 seconds, no sheet of paper, you know, cause then you couldn't get attached to trying to create something. You had to just keep looking and like seeing and seeing what you were seeing and putting it on, you know, letting yeah, it move the, through you. Um, and so when it's just, yeah, that was, the, that's when it just right, feels yeah, really said that good inside. Course that he's taking, like when you make a mistake, just throw it away. Just, you know, just do another, just do another one, just do another one. Yeah. My son plays the guitar and um, he lives in Hawaii, he's in a band. But when he was learning to play the guitar and, you know, I think when you learn to play the guitar, you want to play a song. You don't want to practice the bits. You want to play a song. But at some point in right. time, his, <laughs> his guitar playing got a lot better. And I said, Wow suddenly your guitar playing is quite a bit better. What have you been doing? He goes, oh, I started doing, you know, basically like scales on the piano. He started doing exercises and just doing the exercises for exercise sake. You know, it's like, it's like karma yoga, you know, it's, it's focusing on a task with no mm. thought as the outcome of that task rather than mm. trying to play a song. But he got quite a bit better. And then one day I was, one night I was sitting there watching him and I said, are you at the point now where you don't have to think about what you're doing with your fingers? Like they just do this thing and music comes out and he's like, yeah. And I said, I'm like, how does that feel? Mm. And he looks at me, he goes, dad, that's why you play the guitar. You know what I mean? Like you get to where <laughs> you're just in the flow. You're not thinking yeah. about, I'm going to put this here and this here and that there and you know i do quite a few clinics and i i'll start at eight o'clock in the morning and apart from leaving the arena to go to the restroom i don't stop for lunch i drink i drink water but i don't eat lunch you know people go you must have an iron constitution like you're out there all day and you you don't get tired and you know you must be just good at pushing through discomfort and yada 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 i'm like time stands still when i'm out there when i'm working with a horse in front of a crowd of people and I'm narrating what I'm saying. Like if I'm just working with a horse at home, oh, I can daydream and stuff because I'm 
proficient enough with the horses that it'll still work and I can kind of be some. But when I'm narrating what's going on, explaining what's going on to a group of people while I'm working with the horse, I'm not three seconds ago, I'm not three seconds ahead because I can't be. I'm not thinking, oh, what I just said was stupid yeah. or yeah. what is he going to do next? I, like whatever he, yeah. whatever the horse does is whatever the horse does. Yeah. And yeah. so I get in that flow state doing clinics to where I'm not tired. I'll tell you what, you know, after a two-day clinic, I'm warped because you're present for that long. But at right. the time, it's not, at the time, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not difficult. It's actually, it's actually easy. It's one of the few places where I'm really present. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because some people, you know, who know, who, whatever, who know me here or there, but when I get around the horses, like, wow, I just see a whole, I just, now I really see you. I see a different side of you or whatever. But in, and when I'm teaching, I mean, there's been times where I've been doing a clinic for five weeks with just weekends off, which is a ball buster. But um, I taught my, my staff a long time ago because I, I learned through mistakes that when I'm teaching, I'm just in a different state of consciousness. I'm, I'm really in a different place and, and I have to be there. Right. Like, so I'm in the feeling I'm filtering, I'm sensing everything. I'm not just sensing me, the people, the horses, the environment, and I'm in that space. And so I've, I've learned to tell my staff, like when I'm teaching, don't come up and ask me if I want to have a seat over here, just put the seat over there. Or if, if I want some water, just bring some water or, but don't ask me questions Mm -hmm. because it pops me out of that place, especially with my dyslexia. So then I get like, what? Like I I get disoriented. (laughs) And so I've learned to tell them that, you know, it's like just, and if you have a question about, you know, which horse or something, you know, I'll let you know. And then, or like, ask me later, like take notes and we can talk about it after class kind of thing. But I've learned that too. And in your, I, I, I won't, I really lose my appetite too. Like, like you said, like I do try to stay hydrated. Um, but yeah, I can be out there all day, standing all day. Um, but I have to, I've had to learn too, though. Not everybody can do that. So I'm at, I'm starting to see that um, I have to be a little bit more considerate of, because we'll be out all day, literally, um, of some of the people in terms of they can't stand all day. You know, like, I, I, do I bring them a seat? Do I? I always give people every perfect permission to like take care of yourself. Like, if you need to go use the restroom, if you need to like get water, if you need to, you know, like, um, you know, because they're not always holding the horses. Like the horse, a lot of times when loose, we're working yeah. like that, the horses are loose in the arena and we're in there with them or something. So it's not, quite, you know. As, as active but you have to be so so yeah. in that groove right you have to be in that state of consciousness where you're just it's not just what you're seeing and hearing you know it's it's a lot of other these other senses yeah i used to do um doing clinics i used to have everybody out you know i used to have 12 people all day and then for a few years i went to six people for half a day each and now i have three people for two hours and i get so much more done because they can't, st- most people can't <laughs> stay hooked for that for that yeah. long, and so they get to come in and be as present as they can and working things, mm-hmm. and then they go to just go and have a, a let down. You know what I thought I might do? I might mm-hmm. start asking you some of these questions that you chose. I've got to flip my page over where okay. I've written down the thirteen <laughs> senses. I like the sound of that book. Okay, 
So you've probably already, maybe already answered some of this, but the first question you chose is if you could spread a message across the world, one that people would listen to, what would that be? Or your favorite quote, or. I think what it would be is, I think one of the things that I've kind of been awakened to in the, the recent years is that the importance of giving back to the earth and to nature that we do a lot of taking. So we do a lot of, I mean, not everybody, but some people like, you know, I think we, a lot of people do it even if they don't even recognize that they do it, but like, please help me. And it could be God, great spirit. It could be angels or whoever it is that you're asking for some assistance. You're asking for some help. But what I've been seeing is that you also have to give that back. Like it has, like it has to be reciprocal. And, and so when we're doing anything we do, but I'm going to put it in the, like, um, in the specifics of healing. So if we're, if we're healing other people. So one of the things I saw was like in my work that I do, I mean, I'm, I'm really helping people to move through some transformation, right. Crossing over into, or crossing back into themselves or wherever they're going. And then I just saw that it's not enough to just work with the somatics of the person. We have to work with this, the, the person in relationship to the whole natural world of nature around them. Um, because otherwise we're just healing one person at a time and sending them back out into a, a you know, sick world in a sense. Um, and so shifting our consciousness um, into that broader perspective of being much more in honor and respect of the earth that holds us up and the, the plants and the animals and the weather and you know, all the unknowns and all the mysterious beings that are actually there to support us and help us, but they also need thankfulness and gratefulness and, and some kind of giving back. So some kind of grace of, of giving back. And so the, how can we, when we're working with healing, healing horses, healing humans, um, how can we do that in a more sacred manner of, um, connecting it back to healing the very earth that we stand and walk on. So that would be my, my invitation. Wow. Very, um, you know, we talked before we started recording this podcast and I was talking about Jessica Whiteplume, who is a, uh, a Lakota woman from uh, North Dakota. And it's, it's a very, that's a, what you just talked about then, it sounds a lot like how, Jessica views the world and it's a very indigenous view that is very, I don't know if the, I don't know if the word is refreshing. It just, to me, it feels, I don't know, it feels right. It feels like coming home for some reason. I don't know. It, it feels like that's, yeah, that's what we're supposed to, we're supposed to. It's like, you know, we're, we're, we're social animals just like horses are. So our instinct is to be part of the whole, to be part of the herd. And I think that ultimately what, you know, we, we have this natural connection with horses because our instincts are the same. Um, and, but being a social animal, our instinct also is to contribute, right? To be part of, um, to be a value and to be valued. And so when we come back to the earth like that and remember that she's the one giving us life and holding us up, it now we feel connected. This this social spiritual um, 
or instinct to be connected to the whole. All right. Uh, I know you didn't probably didn't choose the bit, but do you have a favorite quote? Mine? Yes. My favorite quote is, horses make decisions based on how they feel, not on how they think. It's a great quote. Very true quote as well. <laughs> I know you didn't pick this, but do you have a do you have a favorite book? Do you have a, like a favorite book, like not a favorite book like for you, but a book that you recommend the most to people? That's a good question. I, I recommend different books to different people for different reasons. That's a hard one because there's so many, right? Um, okay. Well, you recommend different books to different people. You're talking to me right now. We've been talking for a couple of hours now. What book would you recommend for me? You've read so many books. I think I would recommend my new book. <laughs> well, it's, it's called The Water it. Calls, One Woman's Journey to Reclaim Her Dignity to Freedom. <laughs> One Woman's Journey to what? And that's not being self-promoted. I, I just It's called um, One Woman's Journey to Reclaim Her Dignity and Freedom. I mean, one, just because I'd be curious, because it's it's a nature, it's in nature book, but what would I recommend? Um, I mean, you've already told me about the 13 the, senses. The song, the song, yeah. Did you ever read the song of the dodo? No, the song of the dodo. Let me write that down. That's an interesting one. Um, and you did read Germs, Guns, and Steel? Yes. You know, interesting, interesting story. I was in, my life's been so weird. I was in Australia one time up in what's called the Northern Territory. So the top left-hand corner of Australia. And up there is a place called Arnhem Land, which is traditional Aboriginal land. You actually need a permit to go into Arnhem Land. And um, I was doing a clinic in Darwin, which is the closest major city to there. And the, the lovely lady that organized the clinic, her partner, he lived in an Aboriginal community in Arnhem Land, uh, and he provided, he, worked, he provided the power and the water supply there. So they you know, have a wet season and a dry season. It's tropical. And during the wet season, trucks can't get in there to bring uh, diesel in to run the generators that, that supply power to the town. And so they had, I think he can store a million litres of diesel there for the wet season so there's a there's a river you've got to cross to get in there that's a tidal river uh that's called cahill's crossing and you've probably seen it because it's where um all the crocodiles like there's lots of huge big crocodiles hanging out there and every once in a while someone's car will get washed mm. off the thing and they've got to get rescued away from the crocodiles mm. <laughs> anyway long story short so we but we normally white people can't stay in arnhem land overnight but be, we stayed in um the house of this this guy that was at anyway so there's a hill from where we were living and we we're staying look out front so the front door there's a lagoon and there's this rocky outcrop behind that and we were signed up to take a a tour with one of the local aboriginals of this hill and look at some uh rock art some ancient rock art so we go to the little cultural we book it in one day we go to the little cultural center the next morning we're supposed to be leaving at nine o'clock and we go in there and they say oh the guy's late or something or other, just wait around a bit. So my wife and son and I walk outside and there's a couple of people sitting at this seat, white people sitting at this little seat. And I walked past them and I said to Robin, that guy looked like Peter Garrett. So Peter Garrett was the lead singer of Midnight Oil. Okay. And mm. after Midnight Oil has got back together, but for a while there, Midnight Oil stopped um, 
being a band and Peter Garrett went into politics. And when he was in politics in Australia, he was the leader of the Greens Party and he was the Minister for the Environment mm. and the Minister for the Arts, I think. Anyway, so I said, that looked like Peter Garrett. And Robin said, well, go and see if it is him. And I said, it wouldn't be him. So anyway, I turned around, walked up to this guy. And as I'm walking up to him, I look at him like, oh, my God, that's Peter Garrett. Uh, and I said, <laughs> I introduced myself. We had a bit of a chat. And I said, what are you doing here? He goes, oh, we're supposed to be taking a tour of this hill at 9 o'clock, but the guy's late. So we end up going up this hill with Peter Garrett, who was the Minister for the Arts and the Minister for the environment, and we were in the environment looking at art. But anyway, so we're, we're looking at this um, ancient rock art, and while we were talk, looking at I said to him, have you ever read a book called Guns, Germs and Steel? That's where this whole conversation is going because you just mentioned oh, that thing. Yeah. Jared, yeah. Jared, Jared, what was Jared's name? The guy that wrote it, Jared, can't think of the author's name. Oh, it's, um, where is it? Um, Should have an oh, orange, yeah. orangey sort of a cover, I think. Jared, Jared Diamond. Diamond, that's him. Jared Diamond. Um, so here I am with this very famous person watching, looking at this rock art, and I said, have you ever read Guns, Germs, and Steel? And he goes, oh, yeah, I was at Jared Diamond. I was at Jared Diamond's place just the other day <laughs> talking about something. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was, it was, I know that's a long story, <laughs> but it's like, wow, you know, all the, all the little tentacles of connectedness. Connections that come. What about um, another one is um, – the overstory about the trees. The overstory. Yes. That one is the overstory. That's a series of stories. I haven't, isn't gotten, it? I haven't gotten through the whole thing, but it's about but it's a trees series of stories, but they, it's about trees. Yes. So, um, yeah. Dr. Steve Peters, do you know Dr. Steve Peters? Mm-mm. No. Anyway, he's a guest on the podcast. Well, he suggested that book to me, The Overstory. And I, so it's a series of stories about trees. And I think there's seven stories in the book or something or other. Okay. So the book I was trying to think of that has the Sese Salami thing in it, it's called Radi uh, Radical Wholeness, is what it's called. Oh, I've heard of that. I knew it would come back to me at some point in time. Right. Okay. Okay. I'm going to ask you another question. What is okay. the most worthwhile thing you have put your time into? Something that has changed the course of your life. Ooh, well, I'd first have to say my children, um, <laughs> of course. Um, and I think then I think the equine guide education, like really putting that out there, um, being really committed to it, and you know, being out there sort of through the thick and thin, um, believing in it, um, and um, persevering and staying in when things weren't always so easy, that feels like that just feels like such an important body of work that I've done that um, I have to kind of remind myself like, Ariana, you did that. That's you really, I mean, people tell me that and they, they say, wow, you know, they always say, don't stop, don't stop teaching. Like, you know, cause I'm always like, I'm going to go to something else. And then they're like, don't stop, don't stop. Um, but that feels like something I feel really good about. The next question might be relative to this. That was the most worthwhile thing you put your time into. The other question that you chose was what accomplishment are you most proud of? My latest book, my new book, is something that I'm really 
I'm really proud of. Um, it just came out. It's a personal memoir. Um, I've been writing it for 16 years and it's, um, very vulnerable and, um, I'm proud of myself for like letting myself put it out there. And once again, that was cold. And writing, just even writing, even writing, huh? Once again, that book, that your latest book is called? It's called The Water Calls. I'll send you a copy. Oh, thank you. The Water Calls. And it's One Woman's Journey to Reclaim Her Dignity and Freedom. And it just got five five-star reviews from Reader's Favorite. Very Five separate reviews. Very cool. Super excited. It has my illustrations in it. It has poems. And it it's written in the third person, so... It's a. It starts as me as a little girl, um, by the by the creek and all that. And then every it's it's all Emma's relationship with nature. And there's there's a either a horse or a coyote or ravens in here, um, sheep because I've been a sheep rancher also, and um, and it was just a you know me. Um, so it's, it's got a lot of nature, the lessons from nature in it, basically. And um, it's a personal journey. And um, at the end of each chapter, there's um, me coming back into first person now as in, you know, in my, and, and looking back on that time in my life and what was I, what was either challenging me or what was I struggling with or what did I see or not see? And, um, and then there's opportunities and contemplations for the reader so they mm. can do some of their own journaling and then there's time in nature so there's a go out in nature and talk to a tree or talk to a rock or have a little tea party with your other self um <laughs> wow sounds amazing at the creek. yeah sounds amazing uh the next question you chose was what have you changed in the past five years that has helped shape you who you have become mm. um you know what it is <clears throat> At first, I was like, "What? Did, why did I ask for no. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, hey, you, you, you're going to go, hmm, like you don't want to answer this question. You chose these questions. <laughs> I, um, I could answer all your questions. I mean, I, you know, they're all good ones. Um, you know what it is, is um, learning how to um, self-care mm. and learning how to um, – be more, um, not to be more gentle and to be more, um, to offer more. I'm a very loving person, but I, d I feel like, um, to be a little more upfront about it, <laughs> not so much tough love, but, um, and so to me, I'm really into like this concept of kindness and, um, and then the self-care, um, and um, the self-love, I had to learn that. I, you know, I've had breast cancer. And so that was kind of the big lesson I had to learn. And so the last five years has been a commitment to take to, to self-care, but to, to loving myself. Because that's not something I was doing. So, and And then by doing that, then I can be an invitation to other people to do the same thing. Because I think we're usually the most critical on, we criticize ourselves probably more than other people criticize ourselves. Yeah, I was going to say that that's, that loving yourself thing is pretty hard for most people. 
Uh, next question is, what advice would you give people about to enter your occupation? And first, before you answer it, you have to uh, explain what you think your occupation is. Um, okay. Um, well, when I was thinking about that question, occupation, I, I mean, one is being... Um, it's a good question, right? Um, one is, I mean, whether you're a horse trainer, whether you're an equine guided educator or some version of incorporating horses into the healing arts um, and also, or being an artist. Or a raptor or a expert. So kind of, huh? Or a raptor expert in case there's a whole bunch of people out there who want to get into or, the line of raptor expert. <laughs> right. So um, I think that I would say, well, one, don't worry about your competition. So don't compare yourself to other people and to what they're doing. Um, and to trust yourself, um, trust what you see and what is compelling you to want to do the work that you do and to make the contribution that you want to make. I also thought, you know, finding, finding a, a group or a teacher or a mentor um, as well, so that you're, um, connected. Um, and that can be nature. It doesn't have to be a human being, right? So it could be whatever we call like the higher source or, um, you know, your, your other allies, you know, whatever those are. Um, and just really, like I said, trusting your own intuition about what you see possible and what you want to bring forward. And then also being able to ask for help and get resources to assist where you need to, right? Because we can't be experts in all things. So we can have an expertise or mastery towards our, towards our occupation, but we might need help um, with the technology, for example, or, you know, with um, organization or something like that. So I, you know, try not to lone wolf it at this point in time. You said, you know, you can't be an expert in everything, even though your bio says you are. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay, but I, I, <laughs> I'm, um, I'm not good at technology. I will be totally upfront about that. <laughs> well, you've done a good job of getting on here today and it's all working. So that's, that's pretty good. So what do you do to relieve stress and recharge your batteries? I, um, actually garden. I go out in nature. I go to the beach. I walk on the beach, hang out on the beach. Um, just get into quiet places in nature where sometimes with the trees, um, having my hands in the dirt. I read, I read somewhere recently there is actually a, is it a bacteria? There's something in dirt that mm. actually relieves depression. That's interesting. I forget what it was, but it's something to do with, you know, if so you and you can absorb it through your, the palms of your hands and there's something it's, it's, you know, it's like the earth provides mm. all the right resources. You know what I mean? If you're doing the right thing, like yeah. the, for every, for every poisonous plant, there's another plant nearby. That's the antidote. If you know what the plant is sort of thing. And, and yeah. And so, yeah, uh, Getting dirt on your hands is actually there's there's something that you absorb through your skin from the dirt. It's yeah, that makes sense. 
They actually, there's a book, and I don't remember what it's called, but there's a book where, and maybe this, I think it's called Earthing, where scientists scientifically is shown now that if you take your shoes off and you stand on the earth, that it, it rebalances mm-hmm. and re-energizes and does all these amazing, amazing things. Yes, you're supposed to, you, your feet are supposed to be on the on the ground. Uh, one last question for you that you chose is what do you feel is your true purpose in the world? That is an interesting question. And in, and in a way it's a vulnerable question. So I, it's a little, you know, scary to put it out there, but I, I feel like, um, I'm a visionary. I can see things sometimes before other people see them. And, um, and I'm an artist, so I can, create I can and I mean my goal is to be able to inspire people so if I can inspire people through whatever artistic expression I have whether it's something on paper or or just a relationship with horses um, a different kind of relationship with horses um, and so I feel like I'm part of my purpose is to help this shape-shifting process that we're in um, to be in this, you know, this shifting in consciousness and, and I'm still learning, but to be a better spokesperson for our mother earth and, um, and all of, all of our brothers and sisters that walk on it, her. I think that's a great, that's a great purpose to have in the world. Uh, what's, so what's next for you? I mean, you've just released your new book and you've got, how many books do you have? Four? Four. Yeah. So there would the be. The next I've one. Had, I, I had a list of them here. Hmm? Equine Guided Education, Horses Healing. Oh, I love the title of this one of your early books, Horses Healing Humans, Healing Earth. Yeah. That's what it feels like. You know, you've taken that one step further. So I'm a big Brene Brown fan, and in one of her books, she says that for a long time, she only focused on helping women and girls. That was Mm -hmm. her focus. And then she had this epiphany to where she thought, if we're not helping boys and men, we are not helping women Mm -hmm. and girls. And... I kind of look at it with the horses, you know, I want to help, I want to help the horses, but so I've kind of yeah. flipped that saying around the last few years and, and I talk a lot about mental health and, you know, just being in connection with yourself at clinics, because I feel like if, so I want to help the horses mental health, but I feel like if we're not helping the humans mental health, we're not helping the horse's mental health because the horse, most of the problems the horses are haven't come from the people. And it's almost like you're taking that one step further. You, the, the horses are helping the people are helping the earth. Like I was saying earlier, like I feel like the horses are calling on certain people, certain ones of people to, to shift our consciousness in order to help heal the earth. And by, and the way we heal the earth is by healing the people, Right. Um, because we're the ones that can actually change. We're the ones that are also causing a lot of the problems, right. but we're also the ones that have the ability to, to make the changes and the horses. I, I mean, 
hummingbirds and other animals are probably calling too, but the horses, there's something because they're so big and they're so visible and they're kinesthetic, you know, there's, um, and like they're archetypal, right? So, I mean, I don't, I can't imagine a person who's not awed by a swiftly moving horse, right? So they, they just have a certain kind of presence for us that we listen to. Well, yeah, I think that's very true. But I think the other thing is most people aren't passionate about a butterfly. You might see a butterfly and go, yeah, that's beautiful, but you don't need to change to observe the butterfly, whereas the horses, right? you know what I mean? Like, yeah. oh, I, I love horses. I want to be around horses. I want to ride horses and not yeah. die. Okay, well, you might need to right. change how you view the world a little bit. You might need to be a bit more in control of you. <laughs> you might be a bit more in touch with you. You know what I mean? I think the horses yes. are like I – hear it from people all the time like oh you know doing the work that you do with horses has helped you know me doing the work has has changed my relationship with my husband or my kids or my co-workers or my boss or whatever and mm. and that that change only happened because these people were passionate about getting on with horses you know they've been married to the same man for 25 years but they haven't made the change to make their relationship better they haven't put that work into that, but I'll put it into the horses. And then it's like the rest of humanity kind of reaps the benefits from it. Well, and I'll pull, pull off of that. Like um, people will, people will change themselves for the horses before they will for themselves and for other animals too, but definitely for the horses. And sometimes um, I'll in invite people to do like, what if you thought about that person as if they were a horse? How would that shift your perspective of them? Well, and then all of a sudden, a whole new world opens up. Like, oh, that person's just that person burns a horse. They're they're a little afraid right now, or they're not feeling secure, or <laughs> they need a little something different. Mm, yeah, that's a good way. Okay, look, good way of looking at it. And the horses are so giving, right? They're so generous um, and giving, and lacking and judging. They're not judgmental. I think one of the biggest things I've learned from them. Yeah, I think they will let you let you treat them however you feel you need to treat them, and I'll kind of put up with it. But at, you know, but they will start to challenge you at in different places to where <laughs> there's the opportunity for growth right there. There's the opportunity to change how you go about things or the way you look at things. Mm-hmm. Right. Every time too. Not, not one person, not a person is spared from that. <laughs> yeah, no, every, I would say they always give you a little slice of humble pie. <laughs> yeah. Are you continuing on the same path you've been on or do you see yourself in the future? Like, are you, are you, you still following the path you've been on or you feel like you're starting to morph, you know, cause I think these days the conversations are different, meaning what used to be kind of a bit out of mainstream, especially with what you do, is now becoming more mainstream. I was just uh, in Australia at a big horse expo, the Australia's biggest horse expo I was presenting at, and had so many people come by the booth who were in the equine-assisted field, either mm. equine-assisted learning, equine-assisted psychotherapy, like so many of them. And, it's just, and, and hearing their stories were amazing, but it's, you know, it's it's not not unusual 
these days. So do you feel like you're going to still keep doing what you're doing or you got something new on the horizon? Like, Oh, I'd like to, I'd like to try this. Well, it's interesting question you asked that because, um, you know, by the time I like, I call the marketplace, by the time the marketplace catches up, I'm kind of already off starting, right. you know, starting on a new path. So, um, I do still, I will still teach my equine guided certification program through Skyhorse Academy. Although I have, a new program director who's really going to start to take that a lot of that responsibility on to really free up my time to do the what's next thing. And so yeah, I'll still keep teaching that. Um, I am getting more and more curious about um, I'm so excited now that this is starting to be a conversation that we can have even in a horse expo. Cause um, it wasn't really, you know, they weren't really that open to it 15 years ago or so. Um, so I'm kind of curious about getting back into it that way and, and continuing conversations with, with you and people like you, um, to, towards this larger arcing vision of, um, opening our awareness and how can we help save the mother earth? You know, that's really, um, you know, how do, I mean, I feel like, you know, helping one person develop their own awareness will hopefully help them awaken to being more in connection with, you know, Either it's just the community or the surroundings or the earth itself, whatever, whatever range that that person, any person finds themselves in. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to do, I'm actually working on my next book, which will be much more whimsical um, stories from nature and, um, and just looking for, I'm feeling compelled and sort of pushed by um, my whatever, <laughs> great spirit and my allies or whatever to, you know, try to become a, a different, a more expanded spokesperson for not just horses, but horses, plants, animals, the earth, and, and, and just kind of trusting that, that path. And um, so far, you know, it's working that the next, whatever the next stone that's supposed to be, I'm supposed to step on will appear to itself. So I'm in, I'm, I'm in the game and I'm open and ready to keep moving forward and um, bringing my, curiosity and my passion and um my excitement for living well that's that's Forward. awesome i i think that's yeah i think you're people like you would out there doing uh great things in the world and actually changing the world in a you know for the better and making the world a better place so thank you for doing that Mm, thank you. Thank you for doing that too. Um, we all have our all different ways of doing it and together it fits yeah. like, you know, pieces of a puzzle and they all fits together. Sure does. So how can people find out more about you? Um, for me, um, you can look up um, my name, which is not easy to spell. So it's A-R-I-A-N-A. Mazuki, M-A-Z-Z-U-C-C-H-I dot com. Uh, my farm is Kasari Ranch. My ranch is C-A-S-A-R-I ranch dot com. You'll find me there. And then if for people that are interested specifically in the Equine Guided Certification Program, they can go to Skyhorse Academy. Perfect. What about social media? You got anything going on there? Instagram, Facebook? Um, I have a Facebook page, which is – I. I you know, they can either go to Kasari Ranch or my name, Ariana Strozzi Mizuki, 
and Strozzi's S-T-R-O-Z-Z-I, and just request to be a friend. Uh, I don't do a whole lot of social media um, yet. I know I should, but um, but I do um, have a blog, and um, which is a monthly inspiration blog, and um, and I'm working on getting some of my artwork up on my website, um, and that's just a, a project. Um, but I think Kasari Ranch.com would be the place to to if somebody wants to be on my email list and see what I'm up to, that would be the place to sign up. Perfect. Where is the blog? Because I'm want to scurry off and read it right now. <laughs> it's on. It's there, there's a it's a page. It says blog. Um, That's on. on the, not all my blogs are. Is that on your it's website? It's on my kasariranch.com. Kasari okay. Yeah, and and not all of my um, essays are on there right now. I have to because I just switched um, web platforms. Mm. So I have to get some of them on there. Um, there might be some on the Skyhorse Academy as well, but that's my project right now is just to narrow in, to make all that a little bit more accessible for people. Um, yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the journey on podcast. It's been such a pleasure, uh, chatting with you and getting to know a bit more about you. It's been my pleasure too. Thank you so much for having me. And you guys at home, thanks so much for listening and we'll catch you next time on the next episode of the Journey On Podcast. Thanks for being a part of the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.